Uh, if you're comfortable, uh, maybe close your eyes, try to imagine just whatever works for you to stave off distraction. Envision this bit of narrative that I'm about to walk you guys through as best as you can accommodate. All right. First, imagine the ensuing scene as something of a, a, a dream sequence. If this were a movie, the scene in question would be something sort of hazy, maybe visually stylized. And the first thing that you'll see is this. Um, smoke, and then there's the smell of smoke, and you look, and on the horizon is a great city, and the sky is dark with ash as great plumes of black smoke go billowing into the air over the smoldering rubble of what was once Jerusalem. And a chill in the air rustles the grass around your feet, and in the distance, the eerie moan of weeping within the city wall. Something terrible has happened. The mighty power of foreign pagan Babylon has brought Jerusalem, the holy city, to ruin. And then as you stand there and look, behind you comes the gradual crescendo of padding sandals and heavy breathing. And you whirl around and behold someone running toward you. You brace yourself for impact, but they pass right by, onward to the destruction ahead. And the runner shrinks in the distance as he approaches Jerusalem. From there, we cut to within the charred remains of the city itself. The great columns of stone have collapsed, shattered into enormous boulders. The temple walls have fallen. The king's throne is cracked. And mostly emptied, only a few Jews are left in the wreckage, and they huddle together in confusion and in despair. How could this happen, one asks. Has our God abandoned us, another wonders. And then an old man with a long gray beard speaks up in the small group, barely louder than a whisper, his voice choked with tears and remorse. We did this, he laments. We abandoned our God. Now our temple, our city, our way of life has been destroyed. And the people weep. But then our view of this dream sequence moves upward, above the weeping remnant of survivals, above the glowing embers and the shattered stone, to a watchtower that remains standing, and on it, a watchman. And the watchman squints out on the darkened horizon, and he sees someone running, that same runner that passed you by, frantic, hurrying toward the fallen city. And over the ominous sound of the wind and the dying crackle of fire and the distant lilt of weeping beneath, there's another sound. The runner himself is calling out as he comes, and the watchman leans forward, his brow furrowed. What, what, what is he saying? And then his words echo out again. Good news, he shouts as he comes. Good news. And as the runner comes rushing into the fallen city, panting, his face bright with a great smile of joy, though his feet are torn and bruised from the journey, he says it over and over again. I have good news. Though Israel has sinned, and though her sin has become her destruction, Yahweh, our God, is still king. Our God, Yahweh, reigns even so. And more beautiful, even still, Yahweh has not given up on Israel. He will one day return to this broken place, to this very city, and he will sit on the throne, and he will rule over his people and restore peace, silence the weeping, and dry every tear. And the watchman is overcome with a hope so profound he sings out in joy. In fact, this very story is realized in a poem from Isaiah. If your eyes are closed, open them and read this. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, 
Your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Now, we're not done yet with the mental exercise, so I'm going to ask you to continue to engage your imagination another couple of minutes. Close your eyes if that helps again. Let's continue for one more movement of narrative. So that's something of a dream sequence. You awake from this dream, and you find yourself in the crude, ancient dwelling of a first-century Jewish home. And that dream was a familiar one, one of the great stories of your ancestors, a story you've heard your entire life. Because you're a Jewish fisherman or woman, and as a result of your deep love for your people and your heritage, stories like this one from Isaiah are often on your mind, even while you sleep. Your stories are the stories of Abraham, of Moses, of Joshua. Yours are the Psalms, the prophets, the wisdom of Solomon. And you live in the very land in which this dream story from Isaiah actually unfolded, but things are different now. The same in many ways, but ultimately very different. All is not well in the land of your heritage, of your people. The hope of that runner, that messenger with the good news, has not yet been fulfilled. The Jewish people are now back in their land, but God has not been restored to the throne. Your home, the city of Capernaum, is a militarized zone occupied by a foreign presence for some 70 years now. Though the land belongs to your ancestors, it is ruled by the Roman Empire. These great centurion bullies remind you of their lumbering presence constantly. They make daily security rounds down the city borders. Your uncle, a farmer, was so burdened by Roman taxes, he was forced to sell his farm and work as a debt slave in the fields of his family. These occupying powers care nothing for your stories, for your way of life, or for your God. So with this dream reverberating in your consciousness and the world around you being what it is, you rise and you set off into your village to prepare for a day's work of fishing. Dawn is breaking in the east, the air is cool and damp, and as the homes around you wake and stir, you catch wind of conversations around you, some sense of excitement in a nearby dialogue, and curious, you move toward the voices and you hear about a traveling stranger, a prophet. Some bystanders join in on the conversation. They've heard of this prophet as well. Everyone has heard about this guy, and everyone is talking. He's called Yeshua Manatsarat, or Jesus, who is from Nazareth. And he's made this very city, Capernaum, his home base. But he's been moving, uh, traveling from town to town, village to village, and he's coming to your town next. This prophet, this rabbi, is coming to your local synagogue to teach. And you're not sure... Why? But news of this traveling stranger lingers in your mind. You can't shake it. So by the time Friday arrives, you simply have to see what all the talk is about. So at dusk, the orange glow of warm setting sun, you head to the synagogue. But before you've even fully arrived, you're startled to see crowds, enormous crowds, overflowing from the synagogue. Hundreds of people clamoring into and around a space that seats about 50 or so. So you hurry to the edge of the crowds, the excitement of the people, everyone standing on tiptoes, everyone leaning forward, craning their necks, and beyond the crowds, in the distance, the stranger. And his voice rings out across this silent mob, and you hear the message of this mysterious figure that has everyone talking. Now, open your eyes if you've closed them. If you were to now take the reins of that little narrative, imaginative exercise, 
what would you attribute to this prophet and to this message? In your mind, what is Jesus who is from Nazareth saying in the story? Think about that for a moment. Maybe some of you imagine Jesus in the midst of a parable. He told lots of those, some metaphorical short story often used to teach a greater truth. Maybe some of you imagine one of the great and radical teachings of Jesus about loving your enemies and blessing those who persecute you. Others maybe uh, attribute a famous quote to Jesus, you know, do unto others or the truth will set you free, that sort of thing. But if I asked you to summarize the message of Jesus to complete this narrative, Imagine to yourself what you might suggest it would be. Interestingly, how you answer this question reveals something about your beliefs or perhaps preconceptions about this figure called Jesus. And believe it or not, there is an answer to the question uh, in Matthew's gospel. So with that in mind, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. In uh, the average print Bible, give or take, the Gospel of Matthew is somewhere around 30 pages, depending on how big your typeface is. So across the span of those approximately 30 pages, one central message of Jesus is reiterated by Jesus 1.5 times per page. This message is so core to the teaching and practice of Jesus, in fact, that it should arrive in our minds immediately on the heels of any mention of Jesus himself. Let's read the text and find out what it is. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. When Jesus heard that John, the baptizer, had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. There it is. The central message of Jesus of Nazareth, the concept to which he dedicated the most real estate by far, the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is Matthew's way of describing what the other gospel authors call the kingdom of God. And Matthew summarizes the whole message this way. Repent or stop what you're doing because something is happening that requires us, all of us, to stop and reassess our notions about the world, our values, and who we are. Why? What, what's happened that has caused this to take place? For what reason? What? The kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, I think if we're honest, uh, for many, if not most of us in this room, the kingdom of heaven is not the first thing that comes to mind when we consider the central message of Jesus. But based on sheer volume alone, it should be. Jesus talked about it more than any other thing. It's not uh, hyperbolic to say that all that Jesus said and did was an outworking of this message. And perhaps many of us don't immediately attach the concept to Jesus because we're still not quite sure what it means exactly. Uh, so let's do just a bit of background in unpacking the concept via three specific moments in the Old Testament. Anyone want to guess where we find the very first mention of kingdom in the Bible? Anyone? Want to go out on a limb? Who, who said it? Where? There you go, Levi. Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. Page 1, actually. So turn there with me if you don't mind. Genesis, the very first book in the Hebrew Scriptures or in the Bible as a whole. When in doubt, I think just guess the earliest possible thing. If somebody says, 
uh, when's the earliest time this happens? Just say the earliest thing you could think of. It's like you'll outdo somebody, you know. Anyone want to guess when the phonograph was invented? The dawn of time. Just yell out. The, I didn't say it was a good strategy. Just try it. Now, if you know the story, God in Genesis 1 is depicted as an artist with unfathomable creative power. He breathes order and beauty into a realm of chaos and darkness. And God installs in this beautiful work of art unique creatures for the express purpose of partnership. So let's read Genesis 1 beginning with verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth. Every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground. Everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. So in the story, human beings have the unique calling and capacity to rule over the earth and to subdue it in the language of Genesis. The language is actually of kings and king, kings and queens. More than simply inhabiting the world that we live in, we as human beings develop and remake it wherever we go, for better or for worse. And such is the responsibility uniquely given to human beings by God himself. Rule and reign over the planet as royal stewards of God's work of art. Harness all that raw potential of the garden and direct it in avenues it would not go otherwise for the betterment of the world. Be like God, in other words. Be creative and good and make culture and art and more people and more goodness. Care for the earth and for the animals in it. That's the idea. And when human beings do this, they reflect God. They image God in the language of the scriptures. One analogy might be uh, of a manager and an owner. So the manager is responsible for caring for a business and overseeing operations, I suppose. Uh, but at the end of the day, it belongs to the owner. The owner answers for it. And there's something of a catch here. Uh, as the vocation in question requires significant decisions to be made, will God define what is good and what is evil in this great assignment to rule and to reign? Or will humans seize the opportunity to, divine, to define good and evil on our own terms as we see best for ourselves and for our own tribes at the expense of other people and other tribes? And you know the story. Humans choose the latter. They choose an alternate kingdom, one that we'll, we're like, oh, we'll rule and we'll reign all, all right, but on our terms, not God's. So God is this king who appoints rulers, and the rulers almost immediately stage a coup. They stage a hostile takeover. And as a result, we enter into something that the New Testament goes on to describe as the age of sin and death. And consequently, the entire story of the Bible is about what God plans to do to restore his kingdom and his kingship over creation. If you remember our work in Genesis during the Dealing With Your Past series that we just finished, God singles out one dude, uh, at first called Abram, and begins his restoration project there. Abram and his descendants will, in theory, become the faithful co-rulers in establishing an alternate kingdom amidst the ruins of the first and fallen one. So the family grows, the story unfolds, and the family of Abraham, the Hebrew people, find themselves as slaves in Egypt under the rule of someone called Pharaoh. There's a whole cartoon about it. 
from now I suppose it's quite old, right? When do you think that thing came out? Mike, do you have any guess? No, it's not. It's like, not Disney. Disney making a movie about the Old Testament. Give me a break. <laughs> Prince of Egypt, right? Does anyone want to play some? <laughs> Someone look it up. We've got a satellite right now. This is the only time I'll encourage you to take out your phone in church to settle movie trivia for a second. With it, do you have? No, it's not a Disney movie. It's DreamWorks, right? DreamWorks is the studio that produced the Prince of Egypt, Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. Well, we're not going to get into a whole fight about it. This is how the first problem started. 98. You did it. Way to go. 1998. There's a whole cartoon about it. Now, with that in mind, let's get back to the Bible. Exodus chapter 15. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn uh, the next chapter over if you're in Genesis. Exodus chapter 15. So in the story, there's this character called Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, and he's this enormous figure of power and symbol of corruption in the story. The very essence of redefining good and evil according to selfishly human terms, altogether apart from Yahweh, the creator God. So for Pharaoh, slavery and things like infanticide are good things. They're a means to an end. They represent the greater good. So God raises up someone to rescue Israel. This dude called Moses. You know the story. Pharaoh says no. Things get intense. There's this whole song about it. Uh, perhaps one of the earliest instances of Christians lacking their own creative ingenuity and resorting to simply parodying more capable artists. That's a whole other teaching. But if you don't know what I'm talking about, consider yourself blessed and let's move on. So there's this dramatic, harrowing story. It climaxes with this character Pharaoh ultimately destroying himself decision after decision after decision. Having been consumed with his rebellion against God, Pharaoh is crushed in the sea and the Hebrew slaves go free. It's incredible. And that's the next moment I want to bring up when God himself is first called a king. And it's at the conclusion of this story, this whole insane scene of a parting sea and evil being crushed. And then, like many good stories, the protagonist breaks out into song. Look at uh, Exodus 15, uh, beginning in verse 1. Then Moses and the Israelites sang the song to the Lord. <laughs> I will sing to Yahweh, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father is God, and I will exalt him. And then skip down to verse 18. The song ends with this line. Yahweh reigns forever and ever. Yahweh reigns, or another way of putting that is Yahweh is the king. In this story, God is confronting the effects of mankind choosing their own notion of good and evil, and he is stepping in and asserting his kingdom. And in the process, he's forming a new people. He's liberating the vulnerable and the oppressed as evil, and its effects are being dealt with and driven away. This is what it looks like when God becomes king. He calls out a people, he confronts evil, and it's dealt with. Now you, in the imaginative exercise, the Jewish fisherman or woman, uh, you know this well. These are your stories. You've grown up with them all your life. Now the story continues and something tragic happens. See, God invites these rescued slaves up onto a mountain to really to be married to him, to, to enter into a covenant relationship with him. And the terms of the covenant at first are, are ten things, uh, 10 very famous things, which then are immediately followed by some 603 more things. Uh, the point is that God is making it very clear what it means for this group of tribal, farmer, former slave people 
to live as an alternate society, different from everyone else in the world, and they will be co-rulers with God himself, just as it was intended in the beginning. If Israel can follow these terms, uniquely crafted for this people and at this time, then they will represent God and his vision. They will be what one prophet calls a city on a hill. So do they do it or do they not do it? No, no, it's such a bummer. No, they don't do it. These people rescued from under Pharaoh's evil become like Pharaoh himself, if you know the story, defining good and evil on their own terms, king after king, people after people, ultimately running Israel into the ground, and they're dragged off into exile by pagan Babylon, leaving the great city in a smoldering ruin. So if you're reading, you're thinking, well, what the heck? Now the story of the Bible has become what, what happens now. It's a story in search of an ending. The very people God selected through whom to rescue the world from its evil, now they need rescuing from their own evil, which eventually leads us back to this story in search of an ending, your dream, a city in ruin and a messenger calling out, but wait, good news. There's good news. Now you, as the imagined fisherman or woman in first century Capernaum, you're the inheritor of these stories, and yet you function within the reality of Roman oppression every day. You live by this hope. After all, exile continues to carry on and on, and there seems to be no sign of that song from Isaiah coming to fruition. And yet it lingers in your mind. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Well, this is not the world you live in. The world you live in is occupied by Rome, Roman tax, your uncle driven out of his own farm, the centurions making their rounds every day. But then, on this Friday evening, you stand on the edge of this crowd, traveling stranger in your synagogue. Your heart starts to beat fast, burning inside you as this message rings out from the synagogue in the distant, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This stranger... This Jesus who is from Nazareth is declaring with authority that this promise is coming to fulfillment and right now. What has long been a distant, ambiguous promise so detached from your waking reality, Jesus says, is here. And, and right now, in your lifetime, in your city, in this man, in this stranger. But listen, it's not just what Jesus said. Before we end, let's turn once more back to Matthew chapter 4. And let's read the remainder of the chapter. We left off in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 4 with Matthew's summary of Jesus' core message, which was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Let's read, picking up in verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said. I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in their boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease, every sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, 
those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. What does it look like when God becomes king? He calls out a people. He liberates those in bondage. Evil is confronted and dealt with and driven back. The kingdom is finally arriving, but it's unlike anyone expected it would be. What does life look like in God's kingdom? How is it embodied and fully realized person to person? The next three chapters of Matthew go on to answer this question in great detail via a collection of teachings we often call the Sermon on the Mount, and that's where we're headed in the weeks ahead. Jesus will explain in detail what happens when his kingdom comes and what it looks like. But everything he says defies logic and sensibility. It's so bizarre and unexpected that Jesus has to explain it like crazy. He uses metaphors and analogies. He explains it and re-explains it over and over and over again. And he reveals it in action as well. Jesus confronts individuals and he upends their value systems and their core issues and their character flaws. And Jesus invites them to make decisions about how they'll live and more importantly, under whose rule they will live. So when we arrive there in the, in the Sermon on the Mount after Easter, things will get uncomfortable eventually for everyone. Uh, some of you, I suspect, will get convicted, um, perhaps even offended or angry or confused or all of those things because Jesus is going to make incredible statements about how we're to understand our bodies and our sexuality and how we navigate relationships and marriage and singleness and the way we spend money and the way that we treat people we don't like and the way we resolve conflict and the way that we deal with our enemies, both personal and national. And some of it will make us squirm, and that's okay. Frankly, it seems to me it had better make us squirm. But the idea is to sit under the teachings of Jesus and decide whether or not we will allow Jesus to redefine our reality or not. In Matthew's language, stop what you're doing because something has happened that requires us to reconsider everything. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. Now, we're certainly in a different time and place at the moment, but even so, this is a dangerous, provocative, even brazen sort of message. Um, imagine today the reaction we have to certain individuals and groups who go about claiming to reassert the rule of their God over the world and that everyone must submit Everyone needs to stop what they're doing, reorient their lives because their God is doing something unique in them in the world at the moment. And I would argue that our reactions to some individual who waltzes up claiming to act as God's agent in reinstating the rule of their God over the world, demanding followers, demanding submission, our reaction is probably not entirely dissimilar to the reaction of people in the first century because Jesus wasn't publicly executed by the state for loving people and preaching good morals. You know, um, strangely, those are the very things he's often reduced to, but I doubt that that's what got him killed. That sounds nice enough. Jesus was executed for a dangerous, even treasonous message, claiming to be the new king and uh, of, of his people and of the nations and of the world. And his words are loaded. They're loaded politically and sociologically, and he's publicly proclaiming this dangerous message as if he's not afraid of a thing. He's just going around like he owns the place. Hey, you, follow me. The kingdom is coming in me. It, it's incredible. And we have to ask the question, as they ask the question, will we submit to this king and step into his kingdom, 
or will we pick and choose how we define good and evil for ourselves? Nearly everything Jesus will say will be counterintuitive to us, at least at first, or at least a lot of it. Things like, uh, oh, the first shall be last, and power is actually revealed in weakness, and we're to respond to violence with love and submission, and we value other people and their interest above our own interest, even if they're enemies of ours, even at the expense of our own interest. And you'll see that in these stories, people encounter Jesus, and they realize their deepest motives and values and fears and loves are exposed, for better or for worse, and they find themselves forced to make decisions about who Jesus is and what Jesus says because he simply allows for nothing short of that. And believe me when I'll say, he is going to ask all of us certain things about our bodies, about our money, about the people we don't like, about the relationships that are yet to be reconciled, and he will invite you to consider what it means to bring all of your reality to, to Jesus in submission. That's Jesus' thing. He, he won't allow any part of our reality to escape his loving rule and reign. And frankly, there's no other way to apprentice Jesus of Nazareth. Now, in Matthew's biography, following the teachings of Jesus uh, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, then you get what some Bible scholars call the three triads or, or nine stories of Jesus encountering the very vulnerable, the sick and the shamed, the oppressed and ostracized from society. And King Jesus gravitates toward these individuals, thereby embodying his teachings. It's not just what he says on the Sermon on the Mount, it's what he does. And he confronts the effects of evil on people in God's world via God's upside-down, counterintuitive economy. So he challenges the powerful and the comfortable, the religious leaders, and then he seeks out and values the oppressed and the vulnerable and the sick and the shamed. And these people find their lives and their bodies and their very stories transformed by these encounters with Jesus. This is what it means for God to become king. The total reorganization of your value system, total heart, body, and mind transformation, especially for the most weak and vulnerable. Now, if you've been at Van, Van City for any length of time, perhaps you've heard us take note of and celebrate the fact that this story and by the story, I mean the scriptures, the Bible, the meta-narrative of God, the gospel of Matthew, all of this is our story as well. Yes, it's absolutely written to someone else in a different time, a different place, different language. But those of us who participate in this ongoing story of God's people, this thing we call the church and the growing kingdom of God, we're now a part of this story as well. So consider this for a moment. These stories are not designed to simply relay history. They are, but more than that. This community in Van City, along with other communities of disciples meeting together all over the world today, we visit and we revisit these stories so that they may bring you and I into a living encounter with the same Jesus that approached those fishermen by that lake. And for this reason, these stories were documented. The same person standing outside the crowded synagogue, hearing this message that makes their heart burn inside them, that's us tonight, this evening. We are encountering the same Jesus, the same message. Jesus continues to waltz into our midst. He, he continues to call us to follow him. He still confronts the darkness in our lives and in the world, and he forces us to make a decision about whether or not we will or will not bring our reality into submission before Jesus the King. And you know right now what is not submitted to Jesus in your life. 
whether it's a relationship or your sexuality or a habit or the way that you spend your money or the way that you eat or the way that you communicate or the things you say or the things you don't say, you know that there are gaps in what is submitted to Jesus and what is not submitted to Jesus. And the goal of discipleship is to close those gaps completely. Jesus, by his Spirit, will always bring our attention to those gaps and say, here is where you are enslaved. This is where you destroy yourself and the people around you. So let me set you free. Some of you, I realize, have entire lives that are by design or by your choice not submitted to Jesus. I get that. We're all in different places with Jesus, more or less, and that's okay. Uh, You're absolutely welcome here. This is a safe place to learn about Jesus with other people who are working to do likewise. But listen, a bit of forewarning, Jesus will not simply stand by silently, nodding, saying nothing, waiting for you to work it all out on your own. He will speak up if you give him a platform to do so. He will provoke and challenge and invite you to make decisions, even if just by the scriptures themselves. In reality, you make decisions about Jesus every day. It's not exactly something you can set in limbo. You're you're not waiting to make decisions about submitting to Jesus. You're making them every waking moment of your life. You're saying no to Jesus and his way of sexuality or money or relationships, or you're saying yes to Jesus and his way. You're saying no to following Jesus, or you're saying yes. It's actually quite simple, and it is actually quite black and white. It's, and it's a bit of a paradox. Submitting to the authority of King Jesus is actually freedom. There's freedom in submission and acknowledging Jesus as king and master over your life. The only way Jesus claimed to become a fully realized human being and to have the life that is truly life, or life to the fullest, And in Matthew, we're given this clear portrait of what life in God's kingdom looks like through both the teachings and the lifestyle of Jesus, but not before we get the invitation. And it comes with one heck of a stipulation, repent, come and die first, and then follow me. (laughs) So the worst PR in the world. Of course, most of us have gathered by now that the entirety of your habits and your behavioral patterns and the depths of your heart and your mind cannot be simultaneously surrendered to Jesus and in that moment transformed and upended for good and that's it. It's a process. You know that well enough by now, I'm sure. And that's fine. Jesus compared it himself to walking down a long, narrow road. And he loved to describe the way that the kingdom of God spreads. It's always with these surprising metaphors. It's never a hostile takeover. He says that it's like a tiny little seed that Uh, slowly develops into this enormous plant or it's like this small ingredient that spreads slowly throughout a large recipe and yet you know right now you know the thing or things that are not submitted to the way of Jesus whether it's something that seems small to you to something that seems big to you, from flakiness to porn addiction, from materialism to the occasional drunken night with your friends, from smartphone obsession to bitterness and broken relationships and refusing to move on emotionally, whatever it is for you, we're all over the map here and we're all broken. And I realize many of us have become utterly convinced that these things are either healthy and fine Or we're convinced that they're just unimportant and it's not that big a deal. It doesn't encumber us in our relationship or discipleship to Jesus. Or maybe they're unchangeable and this is just our lot in life. It's who we are. But if you want to follow this Jesus character, he will present before you a radical paradigm for what it means to be human. 
ever-increasing radical paradigm. And you'll see as we move on into the text, it doesn't sound like, oh, yeah, I know, maybe if you could sort of, I don't know, even if it works for you this week, if you want to think about it, I know you're real busy, you know, you've got lots of stuff to do, I understand, you're so busy. You, you guys do know that you get to decide what you do and don't spend your time on? You realize that, right? In fact, I think that conversationally, we should never be allowed to say, I didn't have time for, and we should all be forced to say, I decided not to make time for. It's always the truer statement. Think about that. That's a different teaching. But as you move on into the thing, uh, you'll find that the, the, the teaching and the lifestyle of Jesus is not the, hey, whatever works for you, and you're so special, don't do this thing. That's, you have your own special little thing with me. No, Jesus will say, listen, this is the way to life. And all this is the way to destruction and the destruction of the people around you. And it's really quite simple. Choose life right here and follow me and reject all this. Choose this and follow me. And interestingly, Matthew describes this as good news. The good news is that this is life and you can be submitted to the way of King Jesus and get what he calls life to the fullest. Matthew describes it the same way as the messenger running toward the fallen city. Good news, God is returning to Jerusalem to proclaim his kingship and his kingdom over the world. Now, before we go back to singing tonight, I thought that it might be appropriate if we just spend a little time inviting God's Spirit to come and speak and to reveal to us the ways in our life, the things in our life that are not yet brought into submission to Jesus of Nazareth. So will you guys just uh, clear off your lap. You can stay seating if you like and just um, close your eyes if that helps you with the distraction. You don't have to. And I'm just going to invite God's Spirit to come and to speak.